Friends, um, one of the uh, really great things about being a Christian, and one of the most important things about being a Christian, is uh, the gift of friendship with uh, another Christian believer uh, who it can call you and encourage you in following Jesus in the, when things are really, really happy and when things are really, really sad and all the times in between. And when I moved here, I'm introducing you to a friend of mine. When the, the, he that's, is that's describing his friendship to me, which yeah, is right? really <laughs> quite uncanny. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Um, when, when, when I first moved here, um, I got to meet uh, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Hoskinson. Everybody say, hi, Reverend Dr. Matthew Hoskinson. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty good. Hi, Matt. Yeah, 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 yeah something, something like that. Um, and um, th this is Emmanuel, by the way. Hi, Emmanuel. There we go. Um, and... and over the, over the last, I guess it's three and a half years or something like that, um, uh, Matthew and I have been able to get together and, and talk, and uh, the Lord has used Matthew very significantly, uh, very personally in my life. And so I'm thanking the Lord in front of him and in front of you uh, for him. But he gets to be here as our preacher today, which I'm very grateful for. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. My pleasure. Now, um, Matthew, you were uh, the pastor of... Uh, First Baptist sure. for a number of years. Yes. You're now in a new role. That's correct. And tell us what that new role is. Sure. Uh, the, I, am, I work for Redeemer City to City, which is a church planting nonprofit group uh, based here in the city that sort of was birthed out of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Mm -hmm. And my role is the director of the city ministry program. And, and what does the city ministry program do? So it, it really targets two groups of people. Uh, one is seminarians who have spent some wonderful time in the ivory tower mm -hmm. and who need a bridge back to real life mm -hmm. uh, and real ministry, and particularly ministry in an urban context. So we're trying to provide that sort of uh, that theological and practical transition back into, like to take the things you've learned and bring uh, into uh, local church ministry here in the city. So that's one side of it. And then the other side of it is for those of us for whom seminary may be a little bit further in the rearview mirror than, <laughs> than others uh, who are looking for a refresher or something to uh, stimulate further thought because it's been a little while since they've been back in seminary. So we have four tracks, preaching, pastoring, leadership, and mission. Uh, and they're all taught by practitioners about Almost half of the, the classes are taught by Tim Keller. He sort of retired from Redeemer to spend time in this program. So, but besides him, there are a number of other great thought leaders and practitioners, pastors around the city uh, who are taking part in this to help equip another generation of gospel faithful ministers in the city. So you're training the next generation of pastors. Right. One of the things, uh, Emmanuel, that we've talked about a number of times is that uh, here in New York City, as in every great city, the, uh, the gospel movement, the Lord's church, is a team. We, it's not just individual churches disconnected from each other. We are connected to each other through uh, the work of, or through our union with Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and so uh, Matthew's ministry is key for us. Uh, we wouldn't be here without City to City. Um, the Lord's used uh, that ministry greatly for our church. And so um, we're delighted about what God's doing. Can, can I pray? Absolutely. Thank Father you. in heaven, I thank you so much for Matthew, for his ministry, for his ministry as a uh, local church pastor, and now uh, for his ministry uh, training up the next generation of church leaders. We ask that you will strengthen him by your Holy Spirit, that you will work in him, that you will uh, cause your truth uh, to spread through him, through his teaching, through his uh, serving these students, 
and that a great fruit, a great harvest of the gospel will come forth through that. And we ask that we would benefit from that as well and that we might be part of that. So Lord, work in us, call some of us to more explicit ministry than what we are right now. Uh, and we ask that you will make all those things clear and that your sovereign power will move forward uh, the movement of the gospel in this city. Mm -hmm. So we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 17, 1 through 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the Gospel of the Lord. It is a great delight and honor to be with you today. Uh, I'm not, I did not come alone, but one of my children is here somewhere. She's way over there. Hi, Rihanna. Tomorrow is her birthday, and so we were able to enjoy our uh, birthday breakfast uh, together this morning at the inimitable Dunkin' Donuts, which is only imitated on every other block everywhere. But, but uh, it, was, it was great, and I'm thrilled that uh, she could be with me today. This is the last Sunday of Epiphany, and our gospel that we was just read for us tells the story of the last great demonstration of Jesus' glory before his passion, the story of the transfiguration, a word that, frankly, we don't even use anywhere else in the English language except to describe this. And as I was reading commentators, I was really grateful to see these very scholarly minds say, we don't exactly know what this means, what the word transfiguration means. This something amazing happened, transfiguration. Clearly a demonstration of the glory of Jesus. And it was an incredible experience that Jesus could have gone to alone, like the temptation in the wilderness, but instead he chose three to go with him. And for those three, it was no doubt, perhaps, no doubt a memorable experience, perhaps the most memorable experience of their lives. Peter would actually much later in his life write about this experience in his second epistle. It was impressed on them, as you could imagine, this dramatic moment on the top of the mountain where Jesus shows his glory. This passage is instructive for us today 
because we all long for spiritual experiences like this. Now, I say we all, and I I do mean that, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, whether you uh, accept his claims to deity or are investigating them or uh, spurn them, really all of us, regardless of your faith background, all of us longs for experiences like this. And frankly, I would think that if you adopt kind of a, a, a natural secular mindset that is so often promoted through media and through uh, writing, uh, you especially probably want experiences like this because you're told constantly that we came from insignificance and after death is insignificance and so all you have is this life right now and so you want something to make it significant and so people travel around the world to see Machu Picchu or the Grand Canyon or whatever to try to get these experiences. And you might not know this, but we who are followers of Jesus feel the same way, that we long for experiences like this because there's something about an experience like this that we believe will be transformative. We've had certain ones like that in our past. We've seen this at various times, a a moment in high school or maybe in college where something happened and suddenly we were different people after that. And we still see things in our lives that we'd like to change or that we'd like to grow out of. So maybe this thing will do it or that thing will fix it. If I had just this one experience, my life would be transformed. But our gospel today offers us a warning in our longing for experience. What we find here is three quite ordinary people, Peter, James, and John. These three likely at the time of this story were teenagers, late teenagers, late high school, early college in in our mindset. They're they're not uh, mature adult men as, as we might think of it. They were young, and yet they were amongst Jesus's closest followers. In fact, the three of them uh, comprised a kind of inner circle where they had experiences with Jesus that the rest of the 12 didn't have, much less the crowds that were following Jesus. And these were not educated men. They, they, They were fishers. And yet they were with Jesus. And their experience here begins in verse 1 with Jesus selecting them out of the 12, out of the crowd. We're not told why he wanted these three and these three only. But they were chosen, and they had no idea that when Jesus said, let's go for a walk, they had no idea what they were about to experience. Now we're told by Luke that during this uh, story, during this scene, that they fell asleep. So I think it's safe to assume that it was dusk or it was evening, or fully nighttime. But when they were up there, Jesus was transfigured. Now the Greek word, Uh, uh, that is used here, the language of the New Testament, the the word that's used here is the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. That word that every elementary age budding science uh, scientist learns, right? When they learn about the caterpillar turning into a butterfly. That dramatic change in which, not that the nature of Uh, of the bug changes, but there is a dramatic revealing of what's actually inside. What's inside the caterpillar comes out as a butterfly. If we can use that analogy for Jesus's transfiguration, it is as if the glory of Jesus 
that has been within his nature all this time suddenly just comes bursting out such that his face shines like the sun. It's remarkable. And in these verses, if if you know your, your Hebrew scriptures well, you should hear these echoes and overtones from the experience, or if you watched Ten Commandments when you were a kid, uh, you should see these echoes and overtones uh, of, of Moses up on Mount Sinai, like Jesus, going up a high mountain with three companions, and then this radiant glory that Moses had because he encountered God and spoke to God, and the glory was radiating him off of him with such intensity that he had to put a veil on when he came back down. It was a reflected glory that was luminous. And yet, the difference here with Jesus is that Jesus is not standing face to face with God and having glory reflected off of him. It is what was inside of him bursting out. So much so that his clothes were glowing. Remarkable. Jesus doesn't have a kind of reflected glory, but it is inherent in him. He simply radiates glory. Already we're getting a clue as to who Jesus is. This is an amazing metamorphosis, an amazing transformation, where these three actually witness the glory that Jesus would have after his resurrection. He hasn't been crucified yet, and yet they're seeing a vision of Christ in all of his ascended glory. They get a foretaste. They see the harbinger. And then, as if that weren't enough, Luke says it's about this time that the three of them wake up. Have you ever been stunned by what you saw when you woke up? You look up and say, oh my goodness, like, It's dark outside. It was 2 o'clock when I closed my eyes. When they look up, they not only see the transfigured, glorious Christ, they also see Moses and Elijah. Now, we're not told how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. I mean, they, they didn't have, you know, history textbooks with pictures of Moses and Elijah. Like, we have George Washington pictures, you know, and paintings. They didn't, I don't know how they knew that. Perhaps they were listening to the conversation and Jesus just referred to them as Moses. However they figured it out, they realized Moses and Elijah have shown up. And the way Matthew says it, and the ESV picks this up there in verse 3, he, he adds that little word, behold. It's like, Jesus was transfigured before them and, oh, look. There's Moses and Elijah. What is the significance of of those two men showing up? Well, at one level, Moses and Elijah represented the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures, the entirety of the Old Testament. Moses, of course, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, first and foremost among the prophets. Those two, the the Torah and the prophets, uh, summarizing the entirety of Old Testament Hebrew revelation. And here these two great men are standing with Jesus and talking with him. And it's at this moment that Peter, still waking up, maybe a little groggy, I'm reading into that, but just waking up, he pipes up and says, verse 4, this is good. This is good. 
And actually, friends, I think this is where we can draw our first lesson as it relates to spiritual experiences. Spiritual experiences are good. There are many, even those who follow Jesus, who would completely disclaim any experiential side to Christianity or keep it very, very minimal. We don't want to get too excited here, right? We're not holy rollers. we, We don't want to go to those extremes. We want to keep it kind of on a rational level where we can figure stuff out. But friends, this particular experience for these three is a vital part of their formation as the disciples that Jesus wants them to be. He selected them for this experience on purpose. It was for them. Don Carson, in his commentary, writes uh, on this very point. He says, the transfiguration was largely for the disciples. He says, note how often this is brought up in the text. Jesus brought the inner th- these three men to this event. He was transfigured, Matthew says, before them. The voice spoke to them. Now, this does not mean that they understood it fully, Carson continues, but it indelibly confirmed the disciples' conviction that Jesus was the Messiah. See, it's easy to be cynical about spiritual experiences, especially in our world where we're hearing stories all the time, not just like news media, but through social media. We hear these stories, and it's easy to kind of get this rationalistic, cynical attitude towards, oh yeah, whatever. But friends, don't let the cynicism of our age rob the joy and the goodness of genuine spiritual experience. Peter was right. This is good. It is good for us to be here. So that longing you have to go on a retreat and spend a few days with Jesus Or that longing you have that as you head into Lent this week with Ash Wednesday coming up, that longing you have that as you reflect on your mortality and your brokenness and the cost of redemption that the Spirit will meet you there in fresh ways, that's a good thing. That's a good longing and desire. And yet, attached right to that comes something Peter would regret saying. He goes on to say, If you wish, which, let's give him credit for that. (laughs) If you wish, okay. Maybe here he's learning a little bit like, I don't know what Jesus is exactly wanting here. So he backs up a half step, and if you wish, but then he proceeds with his idea, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, what is going on here? What, What is this with setting up tents? Luke, again, fills in one little detail that I think is helpful here. He notes that Peter doesn't say this until the conversation among the three of them, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, has come to an end, and Moses and Elijah are turning to walk away, and then Peter pipes up and says, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. Let's make three tents. Now, what's the deal with those tabernacles? Well, I mean, you're New Yorkers. You know, you know what these are, right? In Sukkoth, you see them in various places around the city. They're, they're, they're makeshift huts made out of branches and, and, and leaves, and, and they were used uh, as part of the feast uh, as sort of temporary shelters to remind the people of the wilderness wanderings. 
What is Peter, is Peter, I don't think Peter's referring specifically to the feast, but I think what he's referring to is, let's construct little shelters here for the three of you, because two of you are about to leave, and I don't want you to go. I don't want this experience to end. Now, again, trying to give Peter credit, he doesn't say, let's build four of these, you three and me right? Nor does he say, let's build six. He recognizes that that is an elevated group that he is not a part of. But what he does is, and a few different commentators use this word, and I think it's helpful, he's trying to institutionalize the experience. He's trying to make this experience the norm And I'm not going to let it go, and I'm not going to let them go, and we're going to build huts so they have a place to stay. But beyond that, he elevates Jesus to the level of Moses and Elijah. Now, no doubt in this young Jewish man's mind, that is quite the elevation. Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, the great prophet, and here is our rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, I've known that you were great. I just called you Messiah, the son of the living God. Now I'm putting you right here with them, the other messiahs, the other anointed ones who have led our people. No doubt Peter thought this was a tremendous honor. But friends, this was blasphemy. See, right on the heels of his words, Matthew again uses that word behold. He uses it twice actually there in verse um, 5. Behold, it's like, oh look, a bright cloud. And then, oh look, a voice. And that voice speaks, this, this, this is my beloved son. Not these. This is my beloved. Son, the one I love. And even the term, the beloved one, by that time had become a title for the Messiah. Listen to him. And that brings us to a second lesson of spiritual experiences. And that is this. Yes, spiritual experiences are good, but secondly, please note, second, uh, spiritual experiences can be damning if we misinterpret them. Peter is guilty of a horrible misinterpretation of what's going on. He thinks he's in the right because he's elevating Jesus to the level of these other amazing Jewish men. And yet he is corrected by a divine voice saying, no, there is no one like my son. He thought he was giving him honor, but in fact he was not honoring him at all. And see, and that's where the the other thing about why Moses and Elijah were there uh, kind of comes into view. I I said on one level, the reason that they're there is they're they're summarizing the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. Moses and Elijah is the two two of the great leaders and voices of Old Testament Judaism. But they were not just symbols of the old, they were also symbols of what was coming. Because Moses, before he died, said that there would be another prophet who would rise up. A prophet like me, but a prophet unlike me. You need to listen to him. 
The very same words that the voice from the cloud speaks. Listen to him. Listen to him, Moses says. And Elijah was said by Malachi, uh, it was said by Malachi that a new Elijah would come, the forerunner before the one true Messiah. So Moses and Elijah show up not just to say, not at all to say, that Jesus is with us in this group of great men. Moses and Elijah show up to say, our work is done. Because our job was to point. And now the Messiah has come. And we now fade out. He's here. And this incredible spiritual experience is at risk of becoming a source of condemnation for Peter in particular because it becomes an occasion where in thinking he is honoring God, he actually, actually becomes guilty of idolatry and of blasphemy, of taking God's own son and not of elevating him to this level, but of bringing him down, bringing him down to their level. And friends, that's the danger of spiritual experiences for us. To long to go on a retreat, to long for that sweet intimacy with God is good, but to try to institutionalize it, to try to say to Jesus, I have to have this for my life to go all right. Friends, that's taking a good thing and making it ultimate. That's taking a gift and trying to make it the giver. That's taking a blessing and turning it into an idol. We don't really want Jesus. What we want is this experience. That's more important to us than who Jesus is. And when we do that, friends, we eject God from his throne and make this sweet gift of spiritual experience our Lord. And we say to God, I have to have this. You're not enough. And where does that leave us? It leaves us with a sense of dread, just like these three on their faces. But friends, look at what Jesus does in the face of blasphemy. I love this. If you have a pen, circle this. Verse 7. But Jesus came. This resplendently glorious Jesus who radiated with light such that his clothing was shining after having just heard his own glory desecrated by one of his own, the chief of his own. He does not turn away. But he approaches them when they were not going to approach him. And not only that, he puts his hand on them and touches them and speaks over them the word of grace. Have no fear. Don't be afraid. Jesus has brought them into this experience. He has shown them this unbelievable grace. And then after they mistakenly belittle his honor, Jesus in love goes towards them and touches them and says, don't be afraid. And then when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And that's the point. And our third lesson. 
Spiritual experiences are intended to bring you to Jesus. They're there to carry you to him. He's at the heart of it. Jesus and Jesus only. How in the world can Jesus say to them, don't be afraid? I mean, they, they are guilty of great sin in the presence of God himself. He can say, don't be afraid, because Jesus is the son in whom God is well pleased. And Jesus is the one who alone lived the life of perfect faith and obedience that Peter had failed to live, and that James and John had failed to live, and that you and I have failed to live. Jesus lived that life. But beginning with the transfiguration, and as we will begin remembering on Wednesday, Jesus starts unfolding to them that he will suffer and that he will die. That in fact, he would die the death that blasphemers and idolaters should be handed over to and would have been handed over to. Jesus takes that death upon himself, was handed over to be crucified for the sin of the world, and in his dying, he would be, he, in his dying, he would approach us who had no business approaching him because of our sin. In his dying, he would approach us and say, my life for yours. I will lay my life down that you may live. He died the death we should have died. In his sermon on this passage, Bishop N.T. Wright says, we should read this story of the Mount of Transfiguration against the backdrop of Mount Calvary. He writes, here on a mountain is Jesus revealed in glory. There on a hill outside Jerusalem is Jesus revealed in shame. Here his clothes are shining white. There they have been stripped off and soldiers have gambled for them. Here he is flanked by Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's great heroes representing the law and the prophets. There he is flanked by two brigands representing the level to which Israel had sunk in rebellion against God. Here a bright cloud overshadows the scene. There dark Darkness comes upon the land. Here, Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is. There, he is hiding in shame after denying he even knows Jesus. Here, a voice from heaven declares that this is his, uh, this is God's wonderful son. And there, a pagan soldier, in surprise, exclaims, this really was the son of God. See, Jesus lived the life we failed to live, and then died the death we should have died. But that's not the end of the story. And you might wonder, as I did, why the lectionary has us read through verse 9, when that's a new paragraph. And actually it goes into another big discussion about Elijah in verse 10. But I wonder if the reason the narrative concludes in verse 9 is to remind us of the end of the story when the Son of Man is raised from the dead. You see, the one who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died is the one who rose again the third day. You see, friends, Jesus is far more glorious than you and I could ever imagine. We may think we're doing him honor when we put him on the level of great teachers or philosophers, but Jesus is far more glorious. And the spiritual experiences that you have Whenever God chooses to give them to you, 
The heart of it is not the experience itself. The heart of it is getting you to Jesus. They're given to you so that you might set your faith in Jesus and in Jesus only, so that you might see nothing but him. Friends, you know what happens when we set our eyes on Jesus only? When he turns our gaze by the Spirit so that we see him? What happens is metamorphosis. Because St. Paul would actually use the very same verb for transfigured there at the beginning of the story. He would use that very same verb in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, when he's describing Moses and the radiant glory coming off, the reflected glory coming off of him and the veil, and because of the veil, uh, people who have the veil over their hearts can't understand the scriptures, but only in Christ is the veil taken away. And so he says at the conclusion of chapter 3, we with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. And what happens when we see the glory of the Lord? We are transfigured. We are metamorphosed, if that's a word. We're changed into the same image. You see, friends, Jesus' metamorphosis awaits you. We are like those caterpillars. Our natures have been changed, but we still kind of look like worms. And yet Jesus knows what we are, and over time, he is slowly, painstakingly, but unfailingly working to bring out of us who we really are. Jesus' metamorphosis awaits us. Friends, he will do for us what Moses could not do. Moses could say, here's the law, but we couldn't keep it. And he will do for us what Elijah could not do for us. Elijah could say, here's justice, go do it, but we could not. And Jesus comes and says, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets, and I have done it for you, so keep your eyes on me. And that brings me to the fourth and last lesson from this text. Friends, change doesn't come through spiritual experiences. Change comes in Jesus. We aren't changed by what we see so much as we're changed by whom we see. So when you're longing for change in your own life, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you're hungry for renewal, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you're reading the law, when you're reading the prophets, fix your eyes on Jesus. When you're worshiping with the church, Fix your eyes on Jesus. And friends, make it the prayer of your heart that when you open your eyes, you would see Jesus, Jesus only. Because you don't get changed by what you see. You get changed by whom you see. Friends, fix your eyes on Jesus. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m.
Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.